Hi, I'm Justin Hayat, and this is 36. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that out there in the universe, somewhere in the far corners of the world, there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. In 2020, somehow, I managed to get on a plane to Israel to find out more about these secret souls and hear their stories. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. I had never been to Beit Shemesh. It's hidden in the hills on the outskirts of Jerusalem with views and landscapes that could take anyone's breath away. Steep terrains and wide ones too. It was summer, and I remember being a little carsick, maybe even slightly dehydrated. We arrived at our guest's house, or we thought we did. Turns out we were half a mile away. So we walked in the dead heat. I was wearing shorts and schwitzing. Everyone else around me was far more modestly dressed in suits and hats, but they didn't seem to schwitz or complain. Anyway, we arrived at the home of Nisim Black, probably the world's only Black Haredi rapper. You can check me on that. But we didn't come here for music. We came to hear a story. How did he end up here? How did he find his life's purpose? Why Judaism? Why Beit Shemesh? Why the suit and religious coat and the hat in the dead of summer? We knocked on the door, and Nisim's lively kids answered, young, energetic, and full of life. Nisim was upstairs finishing another recording. We set up. His son, Shimon, loved the microphone that we set up. Finally, Nisim came down. He saw us, saw his kids running around us, playing with us, saw his wife hosting us, and smiled. He welcomed us into his home and into his life. And so we began. This is my conversation with Nisim Black. Hello, we are here in uh, Ramat Beit Shemesh. It is so beautiful here. There are hills, hundreds of houses filled with families, and we are in the home of rapper, thinker, an innovator and, and, and TikTok icon, <laughs> Nisim Black. Nisim, thanks so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking in your house. I'm seeing all these pictures of, of rabbis and, yeah. and of the Kotel. Right. And I'm seeing so much Judaica that, that right. you know, a lot of people, I think, uh, put it up just to put it up, well, you know. To you, I'm sure that there's a. It's emotional when you look at these pictures. Yeah, for sure. No, every everywhere, there's one picture missing because uh, it got broke by my kids. One of my six. I'm not gonna say which one it was. Yaakov. <laughs> anyway, but um, all of these pictures are places I love to be. These are like my favorite places. This is Uman. I go to Uman every year for Rosh Hashanah. This is Rabbi Nachman's kever. This is Breslov, where his Hasidim were. This is Rabbi Natan, who was the main Talmud of Rabbi Nachman. So that's like my my place, place. And then, of course, the Kotel. Who doesn't like to go pray at the Kotel? I love to go see Ichimaya Morgenstern. He's a tzaddik in Yerushalayim. I become very close to, very righteous person. Go to the grave of the Baba Sali and Rav Arush is my Rav. So 
Wow. Yeah. I, you know, all the places, you know, I love to be, you know, I, I put up, put up on the walls. It's, it makes it a home. That, yeah. the kids, your right. wife. Right. Life. Right. Absolutely. Beit Shemesh. Yeah. So I don't think you were born in Beit Shemesh. No. No. <laughs> so no. tell me. Not the first time. <laughs> I'm being reborn every day, but uh, not the first time I was not born in Beit Shemesh. No. Yeah. So tell me about the journey that brought you to where you're sitting now at the head of uh, this table that every Shabbat is filled with, I'm sure, kids and right. screaming and laughing and crying right. and this and great food and, and right. friends and, and, and nachas. Yeah. Tell me about the, what led you to here. So um, there's many different things, but one thing is I know about myself. I was very much so always a deep thinker as a kid. I always had this belief in God and the afterworld. And like, I don't know where this... Thing came from for me as a kid. There was nobody religious, you know, in my immediate circle at all. A lot of drug use and abuse as a kid. I was exposed to very early. I was already smoking marijuana at nine years old. So where were you old. living? I was in Seattle, Seattle, Washington, is where I'm originally from. And both my parents were rappers, and they both also sold drugs, like big time. <laughs> you know, my had my dad had couple houses. Thank God he's been able to make a major life transformation now. He's also a pastor and and uh, head of addiction program, but, you know, didn't start out that way. So even after my parents split, when my mother got my stepfather, I also, you know, same business. So already by the time I was 12 years old, 13, I was already selling drugs, you know, running out in the streets and running with gang members and, you know, finding myself in a very, very dark hole. Now, the way that I always say that God works in mysterious ways, the way that it worked out was, I think when I was around seven years old, we moved from 38th and Genesee, which was further north, but it was still part of South Seattle. Then we moved further south near the Sewer Park area in the Jewish neighborhood. So I grew up around Jews, <laughs> you know, for yeah. a good amount of my life, at least from eight years old up. So I used to walk through a synagogue every day to go to, to, go to my elementary school. And um, there was another shul across the street where I used to ride my bikes. You know, we used to set up ramps. They had a big parking lot at the Sephardic synagogue. Now, had I known that years later I'd be going through a conversion in this very same shul, I would have never thought of it, right? But um, so... That was my that was my journey. And far, as far as religion was, my grandfather came to live with us when I was around, I want to say eight years old or somewhere around there. Not shortly after we got into this place, I would say shortly after, so it was around 96 or so. It was maybe, yeah, whew, almost 10 now. And my grandfather introduced me to Islam. So he was a Sunni Muslim. I prayed with him five times a day. He would take me to the mosque. And as religious as he was, he was still very, still much so caught in his street life. He he picked up, he had actually became a Muslim in prison where he had spent most of his life. And he was home for maybe a year, year and a half. And then he went back on a probation violation, which ended up being where he was for the rest of his life. He was in prison. So from that point on, if anybody asked me anything about like my religion, I would tell them I was a Muslim. So when I was 13, um, friends of mine got me involved in this hip hop program. They were really pushing me to go. And I had just recorded my first professional record with this producer, Vitamin D, who was like big stuff, you know what I mean, in Seattle. So like, I was already feeling, I didn't want to go to some program or something like, and I ended up going and it was at this Christian center and this place, I would really say, especially at that time, saved my life, saved my life being at the, with these people. I mean, 
it just gave me the opportunity to be a kid. I mean, my house was filled with people all day running in and out, um, trafficking and all types of, we were battle ran by the FBI when I was a young kid. You know, like I woke up startled to police all over the place and my mother and, and handcuffs and like, you know, I remember they got me dressed, sent me to school and everybody in my house was a handcuff. I didn't know who was gonna be home when I got back. It turned out all my mother was there and my uncle ended up going to prison for like 11 years after that. So it was like, it was a crazy, like um, startling upbringing. But this, to me up until this point of being at this place was everyday life. This was real life. So after going to this program, I became a Christian. And it was about, I would say, a very strong eight months. And the reason why I was so critical, because I was going into high school. And my high school was not a high school that, you know, you just stomp, like, I'm going to go to, and, like, you know, you're going to turn out. Like, it was, it was a rough high school. We were, we were great in terms of, you know, things that we do. I always say, you know, African-American community shouldn't be shy about those things. We were great in sports. On paper, we should have won the championship every year, but we didn't have enough discipline. We didn't have books for a good amount of the uh, school year that I was there. So going in, in that type of environment, you, you just know that the natural product from that is going to be a lot of people who not only are not going to graduate, but they're going to end up on the streets very, very fast. So that being at that program was crucial for me and, and critical and life-saving because, you know, I went into high school being able to sort of have a little bit of a different start. And it wasn't until my 10th grade year where it really hit me. My 9th grade year, I got a little distracted. I was doing some freestyle battling and all the other stuff and, and doing my music thing. And then just out of nowhere, I remember my 10th grade year, I was coming in from some lunch period, some lunch off campus, and I walked into the doors and just boom, something hit me. And I don't know what it was. I'm looking around and my mama had this like, out of body experience. Now, I hadn't smoked anything since I was 13. Now I'm 16 years old already, right? So I think it got out of my system, but I had a trip out. It was a major trip out, but it was so spiritual. And something inside of me was telling me, you don't belong here. You don't belong. And I'm looking at everybody. I grew up with all these kids. Something was telling me. It should inside. feel like home. Yeah, it should feel like home. Why would it not feel like home? And, and I felt like I knew something that nobody else knew, but I didn't even know what it was. But it was something deep inside, so I had no idea what was going on. After a few few minutes, what I always say, I ate a chicken nugget and it went away, you know, after whatever. Maybe because the chicken nugget wasn't kosher, I got it from McDonald's. <laughs> but, uh, you know, anyway, after that, like this little epiphany, I call it, I don't know, I, I just got super involved in Bible study, every group, because I felt like God was trying to tell me something. I didn't know what it was, but I just felt like he was trying to tell me something. So I became like super Bible thumper. I was at every single Christian. missionary. Yeah, Christian. Oh. Yeah, missionary program. I became a, uh, a youth intern. I started running program team for the summer camps there. I became the poster child literally for the Union Gospel Mission in Seattle. And that was all great, fine and dandy. And it carried me through my high school years until, I wanna say around my, the end of my 11th grade year, a couple powerful things happened. I met my wife when I was going into my 11th grade year. So me and my wife been together since we were like 17. So it was my high school wow. sweetheart, which was a miracle in itself because we went to rival high schools. I don't know how I ended up with a girl from that high school. Wow. You know? Those people were all, all evil to me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, she met his voice. So I ended up meeting her. And shortly after that, a, um, a record label approached me, Virgin Records. I had a demo that uh, made it to the desk of an A&R. 
And I started uh, having conversations with this talent scout at the at the label. And at this time, 50 Cent was very big, so they wanted really heavy, like, gangster rap. And that just obviously wasn't what I was producing at that time, you know, being a part of the... Being a junior missionary, that just wasn't really on the, you know. Not it wasn't, on brand. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't foreign to me. You know, I was very familiar with that lifestyle. I, you know, I lived it and I was a part of it. I seen it every day. But, you know, the story went, they, they waved a lot of money in my face. And uh, I ended up going for the bite. And what happened was, is, you know, without even doing the deal, this was just still like in the beginning of these conversations and negotiations. You know, I wanted to tweak my sound to make sure that I was up to par and I just, I lost myself, you know? I lost myself in it. And I didn't really even recognize who I was at this point, you know? I was making gangster records and I ended up in this very, very dark place of just bit the apple. turmoil. Yeah, I bit the apple. Confusion, darkness, and 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 really trying, and, I, and I, I say this not just to say it, but if I didn't have my wife, oh my goodness, I don't think I would be here. She was just, such an anchor for me, you know. Um, she had a very, very strong Christian upbringing, much more than mine. I had the opportunity of also, you know, I was missionized. My wife, she grew up with it, you know. I don't think if I had her, I don't know if I would have made it out because my mind and my vision became so dark. I ended up losing my mother to overdose. My mother OD'd when I was 19. She was 37. And I remember the pain after that, like just it crushed me. I, I felt so like emotionally paralyzed after that, and and also in some degree it was it was like paralyzing, but it also made, brought a certain sensitivity, you know, where this rah rah gangster persona, whatever, was like it, it took a hit, you know, after that. And so it would be like I'm gonna say a year and a half later, I got into a beef with another rapper, and he said some disrespectful things in a song. And after, you know, hearing the song, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to go into the studio, right? And my boys are like, no. They were just like, no, we're going to go beat the guy up. That's what we're going to go do. So this turned into an all-out broad, a nightclub. And the whole thing was a fight, and, and we ended up leaving, going our separate ways. And it turned out a friend of mine went up after me, and he tried to kill him. And that led him to end up in custody. And it put me in a situation because they thought now that I sent somebody to kill them. And they really because know it was what was your friend who was Because it was my friend. And everybody knew that we were tight. Like, that was like one of my main guys I was very, very close to. So after he ended up in custody, now I have a beef that now if they're going to come and try to kill me, I got to try to take them out first. And so that put everything into perspective for me. That made me start crying out. Like, I remembered that at one point I was religious, you know what I mean? Like... And I remember like going home and just like, now it's a reality. This is not rap music anymore. You know what I'm saying? This is not a song anymore. This is a real deal. And I always say that if a person wants to, you know, put on these clothes and he wants to act like this, you're going to get an opportunity to show if this is the real life that you want to live, you know? And if you're really about it, you know, if you're about everything you're writing about, and I realized for myself in that moment, like, this is not, I, this, is a, this is a deviation from where I thought I was going in my life, you know, at one point. So I found myself crying and praying. And after a while, I got a call from, from the other guy, another rapper. And they also wanted to squash the beef, which I took as a miracle because I was praying at that point. So, like, nobody ever, like, has that type of conversation. Pick up the call to see if, like... You're trying to kill them or not. You know, there's a code in the streets. Biggie Smalls used to rap about it. It's called shoot first, ask questions last, right? 
So the fact that they took it upon themselves to actually call me and figure out what was the real situation, because of that, it, it really like put me in a situation, put things back into perspective, like what were you, how'd you get here? It's a big, like serious contemplating and I don't know, I was making an account. I was really trying to figure out how I got to this place in my life. And I just had to start unraveling everything. And it started with prayers and more prayers and more prayers. But I always say the same thing, the same spirit, the same whatever it is that led me through those journeys led me to Judaism. It was just taking steps along the way into something to where God would reveal himself to me even more, in my own, my own personal opinion. So after a while, I picked up the Bible and I started reading it. And I remembered that when I was in all the Bible study groups and different things like that, I had a lot of questions. So I started looking into things myself. I wanted to know if, you know, if, if Jesus was Jewish, how come Christians are not Jewish? How come, you know, how, how did it get to, to this point? So I started going very, very deep into the Didache, all the epigraphal books, the church fathers. I went very, very deep. And, you know, I started to discover that, the, you know, the, the holidays of Christianity weren't even, they're not even connected or shy to the, even the New Testament. So where these things come from, right? So they have a, a pagan thing. Well, how did that connect to Judaism? They don't. What do they have for Judaism? Oh, there's a Passover. Wow, there's a, there's a, there's a circus. There's a, and I start going like, hold on. What, how did everything get discombobulated? Hold on. If the Shabbos is on Saturday, not on Sunday. Like, hold the Zemanim are just off, all the times are off. The whole thing is like something's wrong. And I was like, you know, going through all this. So I, I, I did a, like a, a reset. I got a Quran, at the few different versions of the Christian Bible, JPS Tanakh, whatever, and eight hours a day I'm going through all these different texts, trying to find the truth, what's what. I was on rabbigoogle.com, you know, um, trying to figure it out. And that that's a dark place. That's a, <laughs> that's a dark place. But, you know, it's had some good stuff on it also, you know, in terms of like being able to let me to Chabad.org, let me to Aish, let me to, you know, a lot of different things. So I found myself very confused. And the natural, I think, progression was into uh, Messianic Judaism. That was where I was for about two years, like Jews for Jesus type thing. I was there for about two years in these type of congregations. And it was still very hard for me because I am a traditionalist in terms of I am a, um, I'm a soul that craves authenticity, things at its root. So only I could sit for a place for a while before I start digging it up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I gotta start digging, you know? So it came to a very, very tough place for me where, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't mean to be so like, I'm not a controversial guy because I, I really genuinely have an affinity for not only the people, but for what Christianity did for my life, right? So I'm not one of those guys where I'm like, oh, you know, I hate all, you know, I, I, Rosh Hashem, I was able to make the decision to become Jewish and, and, and whether or not that was really my decision or not. It wasn't like you left them, you just came home. Right, I, I feel like I just came home, you know? I looked at it like this, there's so many different denominations. If there's over a thousand denominations of Christianity and all of them like point to the root of it, you know, which was Orthodox Christianity, Catholicism, they all reject it almost, you know. It's unfortunate. It's a lot of infighting and different things like that. But as I started studying, you know, Judaism and I came across Mizrahi Jews, Taimani and everybody else, it was still the same Chazal. It was still the same sages. It's still the same sages, no matter how far they go. If you go to to conservative and, and reform, what are they doing the customs? They all come from 
they come from the sages. Everything comes from the sages. So the foundation was never shaky. So it felt much more appropriate. It's one of the reasons, it's one of many reasons that Judaism would be because of a much more solid foundation. And the Harsinai story is in everybody's book. Everybody gives testimony to it of what happened to Harsinai, meaning that by the Muslims they do, they believe in the Torah, also by the Christian they believe in the Torah, whatever. Some additions in their books. But that was, uh, that was pretty much my journey. And then so that led me to... I, I thought you lived in Modine and then just moved here. I didn't know it was a whole... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I just watched a movie. <laughs> Sorry, I have rabbi syndrome, so I don't... No, I mean, I I, I, the image that's just stuck in my mind is right. the Sephardic shul that you would walk past. Right. I don't know why. Right, right. I just, I couldn't stop thinking about that. Right. That it was right in front of you. Do you ever feel like, I mean, it may sound like a sci-fi movie, but I don't think it is that future you was ever channeling and telling the you in the past, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Or that there was something that was, that was reassuring. In a way, there was something, and I even have that now. Don't call me crazy, but call me crazy if, it's, if, it, if it makes people feel comfortable to call me crazy. But we, along this journey, it wasn't just me, me and my wife and my wife's Sisters married to my best friend since kindergarten. So we all were Magaya together. We all went on this journey together. And I'd be a liar if I didn't say that we experienced crazy connection to God, revelations, giving assurances that made us feel like we were on the right path the whole time. There's no disconnect. When I hear people talk about like, I don't want to say it's like a very practical approach to Judaism. I just don't know from it because I, I just, I've had experiences with Hashem my whole entire life that was very, very real, very tangible, very panimi, like very, you know, inside. I'm saying like, you know, for instance, even with the music thing that, that I'm doing now, I remember years ago, I quit music when I started my conversion. I quit music. I stopped. Now, when I decided that I would even consider, because a lot of things were going on at this time. My son got sick with meningitis. My, he was four months old or something like that, and he was in the hospital. And I was already really, um, really, really into Rabbi Arush's books, Rabbi Shalom Arush. And he mentioned in a few different books that, you know, if you need a, a big salvation, you should, you should pray to Hashem from your heart for six hours straight. And I, I attempted to do that. I went home after leaving the hospital one day. I was crying. It's my first baby boy, you know, I just had. And we're like, you know, so many different broken things. I just lost my job. It was like a crazy, crazy time for us. And, um, and I, I just started praying. And I started praying and I was praying and I was praying. I hit this place of like deep like meditation. I started thinking. What's going on in my life? What am I not doing that maybe Hashem is signaling me to do? What is God telling me? What do I feel is going on? And I started thinking, everybody was on my case at that time to return to music. And I was telling everybody no, right? Matis Yahu had just had his tipsy-turby thing. I was so scared of like I would lose my faith from being somebody who was, you know, also trying to balance both worlds. I mean, had I known that that was going to, which I feel like today has excelled my spirituality, I, you know, I probably would have jumped at it. But at the time, I was so afraid. It wasn't just him. It was other people who were involved in entertainment who were also Jewish that were taking steps back at this time. And I was afraid that that would happen to me, you know, and because I knew that world so much. And I know the, you know, especially with, with hip hop, which I have a love for, I grew up on such a, 
arrogant sport, you know what I mean? So it takes a person to such a place of pride and everything else that I just didn't want to be back in that place. So I was fighting and fighting. My wife had mentioned her, his friend. I had people who told me they had dreams. I mean, people that are not even religious. So long story short, I finished this prayer with saying to God that if this is something that you want me to do, you have to make it clear. You have to make it clear. I had a broken None of this microphone. sunset, sunset yeah, stuff. Yeah, you know, show me a light falling. From yeah, the I know, exactly. So what I did was I challenged God. What they say you shouldn't do, but there's, we do have riots inside the Torah that, that show that you can do this. So I said that Hashem, if this is what you want, I have a broken microphone. I had a Roland NT2 microphone that was broken, and it was not working. Me and my brother-in-law shared it. I said, if this microphone works. And I'm going to take it as a Simon. I plugged up the microphone after that, and it worked. I recorded a whole album on a microphone that was not working, gave no signal or whatever for I don't know how long I had this microphone. My brother-in-law can verify it. And even after that, I wasn't convinced. So I went to go ask my rabbi, who I thought would have told me no, Rabbi Shmuel Brody, who's uh, just one of the rabbim that's just been the love of my life, really, in terms of helping me grow and to find myself as an individual. So I went to him. He lectured me for like two hours <laughs> straight. And then he gave me a bracha to return to music. If that wasn't enough, I talked to Rabbi Laser Brody, who was, you know, at this time here in Eretz Israel, and he also gave me a big blessing. Like, you know, it's not a it's not a matter of of should you, it's a matter of you must do it, you know? And so I, I returned to music. But the next thing that happened was I was I was also praying another time and all of a sudden, this vision, this dream that I had when I was 17 years old, i never forget it. I was sleeping in my bed, whatever, and I had this dream that I was making, I was music, and I was very, very well known as a, as a musician. As a 17 years old, I wasn't so big at this time, but, and at that time, I wasn't so religious, even, even as a Christian. And I'm telling you, I was, I was, I was God's ambassador to the world. And, and my craft, and when I spoke, people listened to me. I remember this vision, and I had a black suit on. I had a black suit on, I remembered it. It came to me in this meditation I was doing, and he built a dude, and I remembered it, a dream that I hadn't remembered in years. But when I had it at the time, when I was 17 years old, it was so real to me, I woke up, my body was on fire, and I was crying. I was crying, crying, crying like a baby. Fast forward now, look what I'm doing, you know? And one of the main places where I seen myself on the screen back then at that time was in Times Square. And I remember when I was standing to give my concert in Times Square a few years ago and I said, Hashem, this is unreal. This is unreal. This is unreal. Once a person allows himself to be sensitive to these things, you can see Hashem in many, many things. My name, Nisim. I thought I chose my name Nisim because, you know, I seen this, uh, you know, picture of this past president and I'm arguing with everybody about a name because I have to have a name before I go to the base den. And Nisim is one of the names. And I, the other one was, funny or not, Joshua, because my name was originally Joshua for the first 10 minutes of my life. There's a whole machlokas between my, my, my godmother and my father who changed my name. So I don't bring it up to neither one of them. They changed my name to Damien, but my name was originally Joshua. So I was going between Yehoshua and Nisim. I went into the synagogue early on, uh, before Mincha at the Sephardic shul that I was at. And I started talking to God on the name. So I was praying to God just about the name. What name is my name? What's, you know? And I was really like trying to figure it out, you know? 
And right at 7 o'clock, everybody was going to start coming in for, for Mincha and, and Marv or Arvit in this shul. Was it Minha and Arvit? And I went and grabbed the Sidur and it said Nisim on it. Wow. That's not enough. Belonged to another guy. And his name was Nisim. I grabbed it. It said Nisim. So I said, okay, this is already it. A couple years ago, I was away for Hanukkah and a rabbi was speaking. And he started saying things over to me about Nisim. He said, you know, Nisim, he wanted me to sit next to him because he had a whole spiel on, on Nisim and Hanukkah and whatever. And he said, what is Hanukkah? He says, on Hanukkah, what are we doing? We're taking something that had nothing to do with us. It was completely a non-Jewish holiday that they used at this time for filth of, you know, whatever they, they believed in on the 25th day of the winter solstice. And now we use it. As something holy and, and kadosh that in the darkness we're the light. He says, Nisim, this is what you're doing. You're taking something that's been used for so many mundane things and you've turned it and given it light or whatever. I said, thinking, Hanukkah is in Kislev. Kislev is a month of miracles. I was born Zion Kislev, which is during the darkest month of the year, during, during the Hanukkah, the time of Nisim. If that wasn't enough, I just thought about it this year only because it came past Yud Zion Adar is when I was Magaya. It's the other month of Nisim. So Hashem, you know, he made the whole thing happen. You know, I, I, you, you don't know how much you're not choosing until you, you get involved, you know? Wow. This is a vague question, so feel free to say, man, No problem. What is goodness and how has it walked you through your life? I'll tell you something, my, 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 father, my father would say to me all the time, you know, he used to say, every good idea ain't a God idea, right? So for me, absolute goodness, I don't feel like entered my life until really I was able to give it over to God. And I'm not talking in terms of religion or religious. You know, I tell people all the time, I'm still working on being religious. I don't have that down pat too much. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, we, we do things. I daven in a minya and I, and I wear tefillin and I keep Shabbos and I, and, I, and I do the stuff that we all do, right? But the whole thing about me is just like, that relationship has always guided me of trying to filter things through my quote unquote God vision. You know what I mean? Of trying to see the world through those lenses, you know, even like on one point, because the things could be very, very tricky, right? You, you read something and you say, oh, well, God hates this and this and that, but what does he love? You know what I mean? And, and how do we focus on the things that he loves as opposed to like, oh, God doesn't like, you know, so a lot of people are, you know, Street preachers too, they go out and hit people over the head and they think that that's yeah. also called good. But, and I feel like that's, you know, it says in, I think it's in Yechezkel, in, in Ezekiel talks about that God doesn't desire that any person should perish, right? Yeah. But rather that they would make true when they would return to him. Because the goodness, Rav Nassim of Breslov says, he says that if a person knew just even a little bit, if he knew just a small amount of how much Hashem loves them, how much Hashem is head over the heels in love with the person, the person will be a perfect tzaddik. He'd be completely righteous. He oh. would drop everything and run after Hashem if he just knew the love of Hashem. So I think that that's what guides me and that's what really keeps me is my God filter. When did you move to Israel? I moved to Israel in 2015, February. So that's almost six years or five wow. years. Yeah, yeah. I've been here Way too long to not be able to talk Hebrew past 30 minutes, eh. right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And this is a blunt question, but what's it like being a black religious guy in Israel? It has its milas and it has its chesronis. It has its pluses and it has its minuses. I would say I don't get the full experience. 
right, of what it really means. So I always feel very weird answering the question. The reason being because I'm also a celebrity in most of the circles that I've been to. I haven't right. been, and it doesn't matter to the most religious or when I get stopped in Rishon LeZion or Herzliya, Tel Aviv or whatever. So because of that, I don't know what the experiences of being just stum. You know, nobody's Stom, but you know, just some yeah, black yeah. guy that's here who doesn't have a right, TikTok with tens right. of thousands, <laughs> right? Or you know, or so. But because of that, even with that, I do get to see it through my kids. My kids endure things I never had to grow up dealing with, you know. And naturally, because of you know our our choices, we end up in neighborhoods where you know not everybody looks like us. You know what I mean? So you, so we ended up with issues with other kids or not getting into schools and different things like that. It's a very very hard fight. Overall, I've been very very happy retrospectively about it because it brought a lot of things to surface in it. And because I hold the position that I hold. When I do call people on things or when I'm able to speak to Rabunama, it's going to hold more weight because there's a certain level of endearment that the community has already received me with as opposed to somebody else who hasn't had that opportunity. Yeah. So it, it, it definitely has its challenges and it's harder for my kids. More so, I'm more worried about like them growing up with not having any animosity or resentment towards people right. as opposed to like... When by the time they're adults, they're already fine. You know, somebody told me that one time. He's like, you know, and the kids were calling my kids names and different things like that. So I went to certain rabbis or whatever. But a friend, he was just trying to, he's a very old, old, old man. But he was like, you know, it's okay. You know, when these kids get older, they're not going to be saying these names. And I said, well, listen, my kids got to get older without without having pain and, and resentment yeah. and all those That's other hard. things. Yeah. So I'm happy they're going to be okay when they get older. But my kids got to be okay also when he gets older. So, yeah. you know, it puts you in a position to where you to fight and something I was very uncomfortable with. I I shied away from that for a very long time, you know, in terms of my relationship to to Judaism and the community. Very much so. I didn't want to be like that guy that's like, you know, I'm not an activist. And I, I'm just not, you know, I didn't grow up with that. I grew up in Seattle. It almost feels weird for me to be put in a position to where I'm like having to defend you know other people of color as they're trying to travel and move through through the communities. But we're asking everyone, you know, we're interviewing people from all different walks of life here. Mm. What's one line of Torah, Talmud, a song, a verse, a poem, Hebrew or English, it's fun, whatever works, that has guided you or has sat in the back of your head for some time that's really like the oil in your tank that allows Nisim to wake up every day mm-hmm. and to be who God wanted you to be? There's a Pasuk in, in Yermiyahu. I was very big in the Navi because I spent a lot of time learning Tanakh and learning the prophets on my way into Judaism before I knew anything about like, you know, tradition or, or Shulchan Aruch or Mishnah or anything like that. But it was the, it have to be the, the passage that says that, you know, that I chose you and I formed you before, before you even came into this world that, I had already chosen you. I already formed you in womb, and I sanctified you, right? In that case, he was saying to be a Navi into the nations. But this, this is probably one of the biggest things that I, I always, always go back to. And, and I think that coupled with the, the fierceness and the, and the bravery of, of King David's whole entire fight to declare Hashem's name before anybody, before all the nations, you know? I think maybe coupled with those two things have sort of been like 
my essence, my my hus, my my everything, and it comes out in my music. I can't help it. I'm 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 God's man, and I'm a win because He rigged it. You know, the whole thing is just w really feeling like I can throw my whole entire essence and my whole entire being in the strength of God will win the victory for me. You know, because He was always there when you're. He's the always Sephardic there. temple. Right, right, right. He's always there. been there. Well, Always I will not it. stop thinking about that Sephardic temple, and it's so powerful, <laughs> and Sephardic may continue to guide you, oh, and man. because as it guides you, it gives light into the world. So Nisim yeah. Black, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on the podcast, and uh, where can people check out you or your you, stuff? You could check me out. I also have my own podcast, The Deal. Happens to be on the Joshua. Have you heard of it? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Gilad Brownstein, who does our <laughs> editing, who has to sit and listen to me snuff and snorkel seven times before I can get to actually uh, a good sentence. Yeah, we have the deal with the podcast, which is on all the podcast networks. Also have me on Instagram, which is uh, Strudel Nisim Official, like a, like a referee. It's also Nisim Black on Twitter and uh, TikTok, Nisim Black and and you know all the social medias. You can Google NisimBlack.com and you'll find everything there. So YouTube, oh, wow. everything. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I realized I approached this interview totally wrong. It wasn't about how Nisim got to Beit Shemesh, Israel, or even Judaism. It's about how Nisim found Nisim. How he found the most authentic version of himself, made in the image of God, perched on a windy hill in Beit Shemesh. Not looking down on those below him, just looking to raise them up. Nisim lives and floats somewhere in between the things that built up his life so that he could live on that hill outside Jerusalem with song and rap, with prayer and with God, like a boxer, bouncing across all four things that defined him. He's ready for the fight, yearning for redemption. He knows the pain well. Only this boxer, this champion, raps and prays it into the world. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zain. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>